welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, June 8th, we're studying Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40. Paul and Silas are thrown into prison in Philippi, yet the Lord works for good in the midst of evil, as the preaching of the gospel brings a jailer and his household to faith in the Lord Jesus. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Joel Heckman. Pastor Heckman serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. Pastor Heckman, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Tim. As we get started this morning, let's talk context. We're in the city of Philippi still today. What do we need to know about the book of Acts and the surrounding context as we prepare to see what happens in Philippi to Paul and Silas? Well, uh, we can go back a little bit further in chapter 16, where Paul has this vision to go to Macedonia. Starting in verse chapter 16, verse 6, Paul and Silas have just left with Timothy, and they're beginning to kind of bring this mission to preach about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection throughout you know, the rest of the world as they go out from uh Jerusalem and Antioch and all these places. Um, they finally get to Philippi. And of course we have um, Lydia, who is one of the first converts we see here with Paul. And uh, that's one of the, that's the first one in response to this call to go to Macedonia, where Paul gets a vision uh, early in chapter 16, similar to the vision that Peter received. If you go back to Acts chapter 10, where the Lord teaches him that nothing God you know, creates is unclean. And then he goes and he has the conversion of Cornelius, the centurion. Um, more on that in a moment. But So Lydia is converted, and, and that really mirrors the conversion of Cornelius, both Gentiles, this mission that was originally uh, or initially going to be primarily to the Jewish people uh, in chapters 1 through 9. Chapter 10 is really where this mission to bring the Lord Jesus to uh, people who are not yet Christian, not yet followers of the way, you might say. Uh, that's re really where it, it starts going towards Gentiles as well as Jews. And uh, in Philippi, there's two conversions before we get to that conversion today. The first one, um, really, uh, we, we see, uh, I guess there's probably more than that, but Acts 10 is the is Cornelius, then we have Lydia, and then we get to um, this conversion in chapter 16 of the Philippian jailer. Uh, and 17 really continues that mission, chapter 17, if you kind of want to see what happens after this to understand the trajectory of events. Luke is really taking pains to show us how the word works in very unique situations. Um, so we have it working before this, of course, with the conversion of Lydia, baptizing her whole household. And then we have the word of God at work. We'll see first in this story that we have today with a demon-possessed woman where the word of God uh, is at work in this woman. And then the jailer uh, who jails Paul and Silas, we see the word of God 
at work there. And we'll continue to see that as Paul and Silas go to Thessalonica in chapter 17 and receive various responses to the word of God being preached. The Greeks respond positively and the Jewish citizens are, are angered by that teaching. And then they go to Berea a little bit after that where uh, the Jewish hearers are more receptive to the word of God, but um, they still are uh, forced to go away from there. So, so a lot of the context here is meant to just show us Luke is demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit using the word of God to convert uh, just a wide variety of people in a wide variety of situations. But it's always kind of honing back to what is at work in conversion um, what is God doing through evil circumstances to bring about his good purposes? And how is his power overcoming uh, different obstacles in the world? And a, a big thing to remember, a big theme I would say to keep in mind as we go through this text is uh, in conversion, we always see the Lord God working through his spirit and his word to turn hearts towards him. Uh, and he uses the gift of baptism, of course, water and the word. He uses Paul and Silas's preaching. But I'd say that's a, maybe the, one of the best things to keep in mind for context as we go through this story and, and many, many of the stories in the book of Acts. Yeah, over and over again in the book of Acts, we see, this is the way Dr. Oswald put it at the very beginning, that the word of the Lord is the main character. Yep. The word of the Lord is, that's who's doing the work. It is it is the word of God. Mm -hmm. And so we see it again today with Paul and Silas. And today, particularly, we see it even in the case of persecution. So far, so far in Greece, things have gone pretty well with Lydia, but now persecution continues, as we've seen in the preaching of the gospel already. Mm -hmm. So we pick up the text in Acts 16, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowds joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. I think I'll pause there. That takes us through verse 24. So Pastor Hackman, talk a little bit about this person that they meet, this slave girl who is possessed by a demon. What do we need to see about what happens between her and Paul? Well, so Luke brings this story into the fold, and if you look a little bit closer, a couple of the resources I read, this isn't something you necessarily see in the text, but uh, this woman is referred to actually as a Pythoness, a very interesting name, which is just a reference that she's possessed by a demonic spirit. So getting a little bit more into what exactly does that mean, um, the Python was a mythical snake worshipped at uh, Delphi, the city of Delphi in central Greece. And uh, supposedly this, this snake 
prophet had a prophetess or the, the God had a prophetess. And uh, that kind of became synonymous with anyone who spoke and revealed the future kind of as a ventriloquist, someone who does it involuntarily, they became referred to as a, a pythoness, if you were a, a woman who was doing this. And this was the case with this woman. She was possessed by a demonic spirit. They just kind of gave it the name uh, pythoness uh, as a reference point to a false god uh, originating in Delphi. And so we see this woman and she's following along Paul, with Paul and Silas. And I, I was struck initially by what her words were if you go to um <clears throat> if you go back to verse 17 she says these men are servants of the most high god who proclaim to you the way of salvation which initially you know that sounds hey that's that that's kind of accurate isn't it uh, so digging a little deeper though it's it's very interesting the term most high god is actually one that's not used by christians in the new testament which you would think that that sounds very close to you know, something that, that references the way God has revealed himself, but uh, it was actually kind of a more generic term um, for Jews and Gentiles who would kind of refer to a supreme being that doesn't have a specific reference point. It's just sort of a generic God. Um, and that's more what the demon's reference is probably for. It's not an absolute reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course. Uh, and then you talk about the way of salvation. Um, that sounds like it sort of mimics what Christians refer to themselves as followers of the way, but it's still so generic and vague that you could say it could be anything. Um, that you know, salvation is something Jews and Greeks were seeking. There were many paths that were offered to them. So we we see this demon, and we're saying. Okay, that sounds like kind of a proclamation. Doesn't that sound like they are bringing attention to Paul and Silas and their mission in a good way? But really, it's it's probably meant more to be very vague and maybe perhaps uh, derogatory or insulting to Paul and Silas, maybe to distract their hearers from following and confessing Jesus Christ specifically. You know that notice the demon doesn't say anything about Jesus, and so. You see, then after that, Paul is getting annoyed, and I, I kind of wondered, how did he show his annoyance? Not really a big deal, but, you know, is he just, you know, finally throw his arms up and says, all right, get out of her? I don't know, but he, he finds it so frustrating and so inhibitive to their mission that he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, you know, so here, the demon just says the Most High God. Paul here says, we are preaching Christ, Jesus crucified, so come out, and the demon leaves the woman and she, we, we really don't get to hear a whole lot about her after this. And so I, that makes us think the main focus was not necessarily the woman, even though this is a fantastic thing that a woman who is demon possessed is no longer possessed by a demon. I think the main point is the power of God in Christ through the spirit and through the word over the forces of evil. Uh, driving out a demon. Um, and so so maybe two things to finish up this little portion here. Uh, first, and I'll, I'll probably make another point of this a little bit uh, fleshed out a little bit more later, but uh, first you see the danger of greed because these, these men who are profiting off of this woman's, uh, you know, telling the future to people, they were angered. Um, and it meant to hit to their pocketbooks, really, and that reveals a deep idolatry for money is more important than helping the suffering woman who's clearly not in her right mind, clearly has 
something wrong with her. So that's one of the main warnings here is the love of money. As, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, uh, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And this is a very clear example of that, the evil that these men are doing. Um, but then I think one more thing that's really important to consider, especially as we consider what forces of evil specifically are Paul and Silas dealing with here? Um, it's a, a demon, uh, a messenger of Satan. And I just had to think to myself, and, and I think this is maybe something our listeners will agree with. Most of our exposure to the demonic, the satanic, honestly, I believe comes through pop culture, which is not a great, it's a really poor lens through which to view the reality of evil. Um, we see Satan reference in, in you know, cartoons, comedy sketches, movies, um, comparisons that are kind of flippant. And we are, I think it kind of gets us to go one of two ways, depending on where we see Satan and demons depicted. Either you sort of think he's so comical, you don't have to take him seriously uh, because he's just this goofball who, who does mischief, but he's not really that evil, so to speak, or you see him in, you know, movies, if, if anyone's seen paranormal activity, demonic forces that are terrifying, uh, out of control, and there's nothing you can do against them. So it's kind of these extremes we see. And I think the text here does a great job of bringing us from those extremes of either taking Satan not seriously enough or far too seriously that you don't think God has any power over him. The text brings us back to tell us first demons are real. There are evil forces in the world. They're able to exert uh, sinister control over people as we see here and, and many instances in the gospels where Jesus deals with demon possession and drives out demons. Um, we look and we see the Lord Jesus is more powerful than demons and, and sin and death and Satan and hell because Paul says, in the name of Jesus, notice it's not through my power or my name. Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, um, who has power over demons, I command you to come out. And that reminds us that the Lord Jesus is more powerful than even demonic forces, which we maybe are thinking, how can anything overcome that? And if we need, ever need a reminder of that, Jesus overcame all the forces of hell and Satan on the cross and when he walked out of that tomb. So, there's there's probably quite a bit more we could say about this text, but I'd say first it's um, Paul taking again that word, that spoken word, the name of Jesus Christ, and showing that Jesus is more powerful than demons. We'll talk a little bit more about maybe that money aspect and the hope of um, these men and how it's misplaced, but this is just a powerful example of Jesus driving out, uh, the name of Jesus being the force that drives this demon out, and his power, as we'll see going through the rest of this text as well. Let, let's go ahead and move from there to the the hope of gain, as it says there in verse 19, that's mm -hmm. gone. You, you, you said, what a wonderful thing that happens for this, this slave girl. And yet the focus of the narrative doesn't really take us to what happens with her, but rather what happens with her owners. And, and you can tell they're not concerned with her at all. They're just worried about, oh man, now how do we make our money? What, what, what's the warning that's there that we see from the reaction of her owners to what happens? Yeah, so in verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. So it's not just a, oh man, you know, we're losing a source of income. They're furious. They take these men, they say, you have ruined our way of life. So the word that stuck out to me there was hope, and that is a critical word in throughout the scriptures. And 
we go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 4, where it says, uh, our hope in Christ does not disappoint us. Romans 8, 24 uh, tells us that in the hope of Jesus, by this hope, we are saved. Uh, go to Ephesians chapter 2. We are without hope. And without, when we are without God, we are without hope. So it's clearly talking in a very particular, exclusive way about what proper, real, genuine hope is in this world. And it all comes back to Jesus. Um, the response of the slave owners obviously shows that they have severely misplaced hope. Uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not that you know, this is the only thing we can talk about with misplaced hope and riches, but this is primarily, and I, a very important one to consider is the hope, the pleasure and the promise, the fleeting pleasures and promises of riches are what they hoped in. Uh, it's very enticing. You have to admit, uh, riches and wealth, you know, they promise us happiness, fulfillment, status, and even it's, it's like, not only will you have these things, but they'll last as long as you have money. And that's such a lie, obviously. You know, who wouldn't want a million dollars if it was slapped on their lap? But then it almost seems like the more we get, the more we want is the problem with money. And so it becomes so consuming that it clouds what God's will is, what uh, we are to be faithful, uh, how we are to be faithful. And that's obviously the case with these men here. So rather than... Uh, trying to find something or someone that can help this demon-possessed woman who is just suffering in, in one of the worst ways imaginable. We see, um, we see these men uh, taking advantage of this uh, to make a buck. And thankfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, no, drives out the demon. Uh, that's this power that's inferior to Jesus. And also really revealing, I think, the hope of wealth is foolish. Um, and we can take a look at this too and say, well, of course I wouldn't take advantage of a demon possessed woman to make money. Uh, but that's not the only way to make money an idol. It can be, if, you know, sacrificing, uh, being faithful to the Lord on Sundays to make more money, uh, by working. It can, it can sacrifice faithfulness to your family saying my most important priority is work at the price of, you know, being faithful in your marriage or to your children, uh, all kinds of ways we can, you know, we, maybe it's how we find comfort in money. Um, I think there's, uh, potentially a big, um, a test for people coming where we look at, you know, for instance, the world economy, uh, things like inflation, and there's a lot of panic in the world. And that reveals what are our greatest fears. One of our greatest fears apparently is that we're not going to have enough money. We're not going to have enough food, supplies, all these things. And, and those aren't bad things to be concerned with. That's part of our caring for creation, caring for our neighbors, caring for our families and ourselves is to make sure we can provide for people. But as, as Luther explains, again, the first commandment, our fear and love and trust are to be in the Lord alone. Uh, the fear and love and trust that these men had was primarily in wealth, and that prompted their vicious response to uh, Paul and Silas. But our hope is not in wealth. It is in Jesus. Uh, looking to the present and the future, our greatest comfort has to be the Lord Jesus says uh, through Paul, if, you know, if God provided his only son, how much more will he provide, not provide all things for us. Um, and the things in which we find our hope are the Lord Jesus and his promises. Uh, his blood is more precious than gold or silver. I think that's a 
profound image because it teaches us to look away from wealth, um, saying, you think gold and silver are precious? No, it's the blood of Jesus. And then we look to our baptism, our forgiveness, and the word of the Lord, and the body and blood of Jesus. That's where our hope is, because these things don't disappoint. They they don't disappear. Uh, they don't, uh, they're not fleeting or temporary. They're permanent hopes where we can uh, endure any situation where we gain money or lose money and say, I, I can have anything or nothing, but I still have Christ. And that's really, it's the warning of this text. Don't idol, don't, don't make idols out of money or don't make an idol out of money because it really takes you away from the true hope, but also kind of turning us back to, there is a certain sure and certain hope in Jesus Christ and the riches of his grace. And it's not explicit in the text necessarily, but I wanted to draw that out with that word hope and where our real hope is. I I do think that that is helpful because that word hope does stand out. It's such a powerful word for us as Christians. And to see that word used here in the, in the negative context, you know, their hope of gain was gone now that that's a very powerful thing and inviting those contrasts i think is helpful and the the way that you said there at the end you know that our our christian hope is a sure and certain thing when we talk about hope as christians the passage from romans 5 that you mentioned for example we're not talking about i hope it rains or i hope i win the lottery to use a, a money example you know but the hope that we have as as christians is a certainty it's a confidence it's a absolutely sure thing Whereas money, you know, I mean, here the hope is gone completely. And that, I think that's there's something to that with the, as you said, you know, having money often leads us to want more. Well, well, why is that? Because the only hope that money can give us is one that is fleeting and eventually can be taken away. Mm-hmm. Whereas the hope that we have in Christ is, a, is an absolutely sure thing. And, and of course, it's that hope that the, the jailer is going to receive uh, later in this text. But I, I appreciate you bringing that out because it, it's easy to skip over that word. Right. And, and I think it's important to see. Yeah. And if I would add one more thing, if you don't mind. Uh, so Luther in his preface to the Psalter actually talks about the four winds that blow the human heart. And um, he talks about the contrast between uh, evil and good in the present and the future. Uh, the evil and the present as uh, grief and sadness, and that's what they show here, sorrow over uh, you know, what they've lost. And that's not always a bad thing, but they have that uh, present sorrow for the wrong reasons. And then the future, uh, that other wind, is the wind that blows us is fear. Looking to the future, we worry about coming disaster. Um, but then the two good winds that blow in the human heart are hope and joy. Hope is the future. It's it's expectation of something that God has promised that will happen. And that's, again, where our hope comes in. We know Christ will return. We know uh, that Christ has our future in his hands. But we also, that fourth wind um, that Luther talks about is joy in the present. That's a present security that God is going to provide for us, and we can find joy in that. And I thought that was a great way to to illustrate that. Um, the, the fear and sorrow are those things that blow us away from God um, sometimes, but hope and joy are those things that keep us secure. Um, and I thought that, that was a great way for Luther to put that. Now, the, the main thing that we do see here is the persecution that mm-hmm. begins from this moment. So the owners realize their source of money is drying up. They're going to take it out on Paul and Silas. We have about three minutes here, Pastor Heckman. Sure. As you look at the persecution that Paul and Silas endure, 
help us to see how it's similar to Jesus' own suffering, and then we'll pick up more on the other side of the break. Sure. So one of the first things I notice here is the parallels to the way Jesus was treated with the way Paul and Silas were treated. They do something good. They proclaim the name of Jesus to drive out a demon, but then they were wrongly accused of doing evil. They were both beaten. They were stripped of their clothing. Um, and then they were not just, they were con- treated with contempt, not just by the authorities, but by the local crowds as well, because we see them brought into the marketplace and the authorities are notified of their uh, supposed transgression. And the local crowd say, yeah, these people are stirring up uh not, not a riot, but they're using practices that are at odds with our laws and with everything we do here. So there's definite parallels there, but maybe the biggest parallel is the fact that those who are faithful to Christ should expect suffering sometimes. And this is something that Paul and Silas knew full well entering into their ministry. If you go back to passages like John 16, 33, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will. It's not you might have it, you will have it. That's just the nature of the world. It hated Christ and it will hate those who are faithful to him. We see that all over our world, not just in our local uh, states or communities, but throughout the world, there is persecution for people who are faithful. And Jesus, it's, it's interesting going back to Matthew 10, he says, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That's exactly what is happening here. Uh, and if we don't expect this, we're going to be taken by surprise and think, why am I being treated this way? I thought being a Christian is supposed to be all smooth sailing, but that's to ignore the text, to ignore the life of Jesus. So what do we do expecting it? We remain steadfast and faithful, trusting in the the promises of the Lord, just as we'll see Paul and Silas doing here on the other side of the break. Um, We don't need to fear. We might uh, receive a great deal of suffering in this world in various forms, but when we keep uh, keep continuing in the Word of God and remain faithful, we can also expect the Lord Jesus to keep His promises for us, to provide and care for us, just as we'll see Him doing uh, for Paul and Silas here. So that's just a little couple things to keep in mind as we look a little bit closer at their particular persecution here. And we will pick more of that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, talking Act 16 with Pastor Joel Heckman. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, June 8th. We're studying Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40 with Pastor Joel Heckman. He serves at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma. 
Pastor Heckman, prior to the break, we were talking about the persecution that Paul and Silas receive here in Philippi. It mirrors our Lord's, our Lord's own suffering. They now find themselves in jail. They're in the inner prison. Their feet are fastened in stocks. And we pick up the text again in verse 25 now. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into the prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. That takes us through the end of our text today, through the end of Acts chapter 16. Pastor Eggman, this scene I think is familiar to many as a Sunday school story. And one of the most striking parts is that you've got Paul and Silas in prison. And what are they doing? They're praying. They're singing hymns. How is this possible? (laughs) So, yeah, a lot to process in this text. I think that's a great place to start is the confession of faith from Paul and Silas in jail is quite compelling. Uh, As one of the commentaries said, there's just something uncanny about these men that the jailer and the people here are noticing. So what would you expect after the treatment that Paul and Silas had received? Maybe gnashing of teeth, insults at the jailers, anger pounding on the bars. But what are Paul and Silas doing? They are praying and singing hymns, which is incredible because, you know, they don't have a hymnal in front of them, obviously. They don't have any of their uh, papyrus scrolls or uh, their their uh, texts that they could have used to maybe have words. They have the word of the Lord hidden in their hearts, as we say, as, as Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Uh, Paul and Silas are able to do this through the, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the strength of their memory. They have internalized these texts for moments like this, where it gives them not just language to lament, but also to praise the Lord, even in times of suffering. And I think that's a challenge for modern day Christians for one reason or another. Why do we speak the same texts over and over again? Why do we hear them over and over again? Why do we sing 
this hymn so many times. Uh, it's really a thirst for novelty or maybe a lust for novelty, you might say, that really detracts from the beauty of singing these texts over and over again. I know uh, growing up, I that was my thought when I was little. It's like, didn't we just sing this a month ago or something? And little did I realize yeah. uh, this is internalizing it. So at a time when you wish to praise God, you are learning the language of faith through this liturgy, through these hymns. And I believe this is precisely what's happening here with Paul and Silas. They have the language of faith because they've meditated on the word of God. They have spoken it frequently. And this is not just because they're apostles. This is something that Christians did regularly singing hymns together, reading the texts of scripture. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that none of the soldiers left or, or none of the prisoners left, I should say. That was another just really surprising thing to take away. Once the earthquake comes, um, all the doors of the prison are open, but none of the prisoners leave. You would think they would just split immediately, like, let me out of here. But none of them leave. And I think one of the reasons they stay was probably maybe the earthquake. But I think the witness and the confession of faith from Paul and Silas was that compelling. And that, again, kind of bringing us back to our uh, overarching story or theme of this is the word of God working not just to convert the Philippian jailer, but also to give witness to the other, these other prisoners. I don't know if they were converted. The text doesn't say that wouldn't surprise me if they were, but at the very least, it's this bold confession of faith where the word of God internalized by Paul and Silas leads not just to prayer, which is a great witness. They trust in God and they're prompted to pray when they're in danger and in trouble, but also saying, we are going to praise the Lord, proving that you can put us in jail, but the, the word of God will not be silenced uh, and our trust in God cannot be hindered. So I thought that was one of the big points in this text to take away. I think that's important for us as well. I mean, when when we worship God, we do so out of out of a response to Him. I mean, we we sing, we pray because this is what Christians do toward God. This is what He's told us to do. We do out of response to to the gospel that He's given to us, and so we can't help but sing and pray. But at the same time, we shouldn't forget that when we do that, it does serve as a witness to others. I really appreciate you you bringing that out about how the other prisoners were listening to this. And I, I mean, I think in my own congregation, my own my own children, how they get to witness the faithful saints around them singing the hymns, and what a what a powerful witness that is to my own children. Or, and I'm I'm sure you've heard this before too, Pastor Heckman, when someone tells me, Pastor, we were we were praying at a restaurant, and another family came up and and they saw that and they asked us to pray for them. Those those moments where you know you're just praying because that's what Christians do they give thanks to God mm -hmm. but that does also serves as part of our witness and and certainly here what a what a powerful thing and and two I mean amen to memorizing hymns because <laughs> yes. you never know when you're going to need them mm -hmm. and, and certainly Paul Paul and Barnabas or excuse me Paul and Silas needed it here and and they had them when they needed them what what a wonderful thing mm -hmm. now you've you've mentioned already the the sign, the the means by which God frees them from prison in this case is the earthquake. Talk a little bit about that earthquake. So the earthquake is is the power of God on display. We say it, the power of God can work in, in many and various ways. Of course, we saw, um, you know, after the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, he says it is, it is finished, gives up his spirit that there's the earthquake, the temple curtain is torn in two, um, all this stuff happening. And here the earthquake is the means by which God frees 
not just Paul and Silas, but all these prisoners. And interesting, too, that it frees not just Paul and Silas, but everyone. Uh, and that was probably one of God's ways to bringing the word and, and the witness to these people who, again, we don't know if they were converted, but, you know, I don't think it would be a stretch to imagine they might have been. Um, but I, why did God do it this way? I, I have to think it was the way that would be most compelling to this jailer in particular, because he's the one who's kind of the central focus in terms of the Gentiles in this text. He's the one who we focus on um, primarily. And it's it's very interesting that he is about to kill himself. And you ask, why would he do that? I mean, maybe he would just be reprimanded if they all escaped and the, his superiors found out. But really, actually, in his position, if prisoners escaped, his life would have been required of him in their place, according to the standards by which he, you know, their jail and their battalion operated, he would have been killed for this. So you can see he wants to kind of preserve his own dignity here, but thankfully through that earthquake uh, and through Paul and Silas calling out, hey, we're still here, all of us are here. That's the power of God working on him, not only to preserve his life, but also to convert him. So we see not just uh, the earthquake here, which is probably shocked the guy. I mean, if I were caught in the middle of a jail in an earthquake, we have earthquakes here in Oklahoma. I've never felt <laughs> never felt one, thankfully. Uh, they're all over, but even, you know, people talk about when you get one of these low magnitude earthquakes that, you know, shakes something on the mantelpiece or on the shelves, your table, and it's kind of scary. This was a, a earthquake powerful enough to open all these jail doors. So he was, it got his attention. And then, and then he turns to Paul and Silas. He's maybe heard of this way of salvation and he turns and says, what must I do to be saved? So that's the primary thing here is it's the power of God. It's not some freak accidents in the earth. It's God causing this earthquake. And then his instruments of witnessing Paul and Silas are right there when the jailer is, I, I, I need salvation. What, 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 what must I do? And then they're there to bring that comfort to him. So talk more about what happens with the jailer. The The main event, if you will, is is when the jailer, he realizes what's happened. Paul and Silas have calmed him down. He gets lights on. I mean, so torches are brought in. Mm -hmm. I mean, we shouldn't, he didn't flip a light switch. So <laughs> we need to make sure we understand the context here. Mm -hmm. So torches are brought in. Light is, is brought. He sees Paul and Silas now and he, he asks, I mean, he gets straight to the point. What must I do to be saved? What What's going on here as the, the jailer is brought to faith? So... Again, we see the word of God at work here, and it, it's not quite as explicit right here uh, when he says, what must I do to be saved? Uh, he's, he's trying to find something to cling to in this jarring event where he thinks I'm going to die. And then all of a sudden, okay, I'm not going to die, but how do I go forward from here? I've just seen the power of something free these men. And then I, I'm guessing he thought back to the word which he heard in the hymns, they were praising God, praying to him. So maybe he's thinking there's something to this. Uh, and it, on the surface, it might seem like this is what we call decision theology, where he says, what must I do to be saved? He's kind of reaching out to grab God. And then maybe Paul and Silas give him God, and then he takes hold of him. But what's really happening is the word of God, the Holy Spirit, prompting this, this man to even ask that question is the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see, we, we see Paul and Silas doing something a little bit different than maybe the rest of the conversion stories or some of the other conversion stories and acts. 
And I was, I was able to take a class on the Book of Acts in seminary. It was a wonderful class. And one of the things we looked at, again, as, as Professor Oswald at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis likes to say, the word is the main character. The word is, is the, that primary, essential, consistent ingredient, you might say, in the salvation formula. And here it's no different. We see, uh, you know, think to Peter at Pentecost, they, the people are cut to the heart by his sermon and they similar to the jailer say, what, you know, what must we do to be saved? What should we do now that we've been convicted by the law? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. Here, Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in um, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who are in his house. So there's the word coming in. And they are baptized. So even that desire to be baptized, that you might say decision to be baptized, that is through the power of the word, through the teaching of these apostles that the Holy Spirit takes. That's his tool for conversion, uh, that means of grace, not just in the preaching of the word, but then in baptism. Um, and we, it, it's easy to say, well, the jailer made that decision. Uh, the the jailer kind of uh, was prepared for that, and then he kind of took that next step. But that is to really deny and downplay and discredit the power of God's word here. And that's what we cling to. Um, that's what we cling to, not just in this text, but in our own conversion stories. You know, if someone asks you, when were you saved? It's not necessarily a question we hear in Lutheran circles very much, but if you're talking to uh, especially some of our Baptist brothers and sisters in Christ um, who have a very different understanding of baptism and conversion, a witness we can give uh, is, you know, I was saved the day I was baptized. Uh, and we see it's, it's such a powerful thing here where the, the, the jailer who just moments before had no no interest in God, no interest in upholding the truth. And now he's baptized. That is just a profound working of the word of God in a Gentile jailer and not just him, but his entire household. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But the main point here, I would say, is conversion never happens outside of God's word being used by the Holy Spirit and those various what we call means of grace, the, the, the Lord's Supper, baptism, and the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. So go ahead and talk about the fact that the household is baptized. We saw this with Lydia in the previous text. Here again, we have a, a one person who's baptized, but he brings his whole household with him. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is a great thing to focus on. Uh, first of all, first of all, uh, we need to remember that this demonstrates this is a great move by this jailer. He's the head of the household according to the way the Lord has created us and placed us in various, uh, we might say, roles within the the, the, the family structure where um, he created, as we go back to even to Adam and Eve, Adam was the leader and he describes Eve as the helpmate. That's a whole nother, whole nother Bible study, whole nother conversation to have, but one of the primary lessons from that text is the the man is supposed to be the head of the house, especially in terms of spiritual leadership. They are the ones who have the first foremost responsibility to train their children in faith. It's not saying, you know, mothers and, and grandmothers and aunts and sisters don't have this responsibility. It's just in a way the men really set the tone. They lead in that sense. And it's 
the primary uh, the primary responsibility really you would say for the head of the house is to have any children and family members baptized because this is the means by which God saves people and also the means by which he assures us of our salvation throughout our lives. We talk about um, extra nos, things outside of ourselves that assure us of our salvation, not things inside of ourselves like our fleeting feelings. This baptism is something outside of ourselves that as spiritual leaders, as men of the household, we are to bring to our children, to our families, whoever needs baptism. And that's such a powerful point here. Second thing to notice is that it's a communal faith. Um, The jailer is not an individual who is isolated in this event. It's not, I'm baptized, but you know, good luck family. He says, no, this is something that's so important. This is something that goes to my entire household. This is the corporate communal faith that we have together, uh, which is, you know, maybe this is a bit of a you know, kind of a stretch with this particular text. Um, but it really speaks to the importance of in our day and age where we want to isolate ourselves and make faith kind of an individualistic thing. Like it's, it's my relationship with God and, and you should have nothing to do with it. Well, there certainly is that, you know, your relationship with God, you know, you are not someone else. You're the individual that God has made you. And there's certainly that unique confession of faith that you have, but faith is never something that we do outside of God's community. Uh, When we're on our own, when we're isolated, we are far more vulnerable to temptation. We're far more vulnerable to indulging those, to going off with our own ideas about who is God and what are his promises. But when we're in that community of faith, we not only have a community to shape and form us and hold us accountable, we also have a community that builds us up and strengthens us. Um, You're going to be a lot more encouraged uh, in a community that prays with you um, and encourages you and sings hymns with you. Uh, As we even see here, Paul and Silas kind of strengthen one another with their public witness together. It's not individualistic, and that's a big thing here. The household was baptized, not just the jailer. And then the last thing I would point out, um, household baptism does not discriminate by age. Uh, there are you know, Christian circles where we talk about age of accountability, which is not a biblical concept. We never see anything about uh, at this particular age, you're ready to do so-and-so as a Christian. No, it, it, baptism is for everyone. Uh, and that's a big theme in Acts, household baptisms. You saw that with Lydia. They, they make no discrimination in the text. Uh, now, of course, that's kind of a bit more of an argument from what's not there. Uh, but then go back to Acts 2. He says, Peter says at that Pentecost sermon, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all you who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So, Again, not explicitly pointed out in this text, but the fact that the entire household is baptized, you have to imagine there were younger people in there, perhaps children, uh, but it doesn't say people in the household over the age of eight or whatever the age of accountability is for a particular church. It's just the household. And I think that's that's powerful. It really supports the notion that everyone is a sinner and ever needs God's grace and no one is excluded in these household baptisms. So after everyone has been baptized in the household, the kids too, the, the next day comes and it's time to let them go. The magistrates say, hey, you can, you can go now. 
Paul though doesn't go quietly into the night. <laughs> he he starts to he starts to say, "Hey, we're Roman citizens. You need to come out over here and let us out yourselves." Got about six minutes here, Pastor Heckman. What's going on? Why why does Paul do this at the end? Yeah, and this is a great thing on which to focus because we this is quite the opposite of what we see Jesus doing when he is on trial. He is, as Isaiah says, as a lamb led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. And when he's on trial with all these false accusations, um, Christ did not at any point demand, you know, I, you know, I have rights, let me go, quit doing this to me. And that's also initially what happened with Paul and Silas, because that was one of my questions as I read through this text. Why didn't they appeal to this Roman citizenship uh, prior to being jailed. Um, maybe they plead and it was ignored. Maybe he needed proof and he didn't have it and then he could get it when he was outside of jail. Um, we don't know why exactly Paul did not appeal to this uh, prior to that. It's not terribly important. It's just kind of an interesting detail to process. But, excuse me, going over some uh, explanations or thoughts on this. Why did Paul decide after they were released from prison and it looked like they were home free? Why does he decide to kind of dig in his heels and say, uh, uh-uh, we were mistreated and there have to be, you might say consequences or, or this is not okay. And we demand to have an audience with these people who mistreated us. Well, um, here's, here's some thoughts that a, a couple of sources have first, Paul may have been afraid that the gospel would have been silenced in that place if he didn't say anything. And this would be a way to assure that he would have a voice in the future by saying, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Um, I deserve to be treated differently because the gospel needs to be preached here. I'm going to really cling to that and put it forward to make sure that the people I'm leaving here still have an opportunity to hear the gospel in the future. Uh, And that's kind of ties into the second point. He may have wanted to ensure that he would be welcomed back to Philippi in the future as a Roman citizen and not just this vagabond uh, rabble rouser who is trying to stir up trouble. No, he's a citizen and you might not like what he's doing, but he still has the right to be here. Um, And then a third point some people make, uh, Paul may have wanted to do all he could to ensure the safety of Christians who could not appeal to Roman citizenship. And by appealing to his rights, the thought is maybe other local Christians who are not Roman citizens and didn't have this thing to which they could appeal, maybe they'd be left alone for a time on the part of the magistrate's fear of Paul. Maybe, you know, if if he comes back and, and decides he wants to kind of get even with these people and he finds that his friends, his people to whom he's preaching have been mistreated, Uh, Maybe he would get angry and act on that. So there's maybe that fear that kept them from abusing them or maybe kept the Philippian citizens safe. Um, But in another final point, he may have wanted to hold civic leaders accountable as people placed in that position by authority of God, by the authority of God. Um, And that's really just saying the the left-hand realm, the left-hand kingdom, as Luther put it, which is the way in which God works through governments and authorities to keep order in the world, to protect the innocent, to deter and fight back against evil. They need to be held accountable to 
when they are not doing their job. And that was maybe one of the things Paul was trying to do. But whatever the reason, I think the big thing here for Paul is the gospel is at stake. The most important for thing, thing for him is the word. Uh, if that's at stake, if, if it might be snuffed out in this place, that is his greatest concern. Uh, and then after that is the welfare for God's people. It's not Paul saying, well, I was wronged and I want to get back. I want to get even. I think we see clearly here that uh, Paul is really focusing, because this, this church did continue here. Paul is focusing on what's the future of the people of God here, not I want to you know, kind of get back these people from mistreating me. And we see, if you look in Philippians 1, 27 through 30, that the church did um, experience persecution. And Paul probably had that in mind saying to himself, if I leave things the way they are, um, I am potentially not going to be able to come back here and help this church and strengthen them. And so we look at this and we say, what does this teach us about our role as Christians who are also certainly citizens of the countries in which we live? And this really uses, it says we, we should not use our rights for our selfish individualistic ends as we're tempted to, but really for the proclamation of the gospel and very importantly, for the sake of the neighbor and their care. So, so free speech, the right to bear arms, the right to privacy, uh, the right to be treated fairly as a citizen. We use those all for the, the betterment of the neighbor, for the glory of God, for the care of creation. Um, we can, you know, many people stand on, I have a right to do this or that and live my own way. And, you know, obviously there is freedom that we have to live in certain ways, but we want to be asking, is this something that's a faithful witness to Jesus Christ. Is it taking care of my neighbor? Is it just kind of, kind of something I do for myself? And I think that's Paul's primary goal is again, to be faithful to God, to help the neighbor, to preserve the gospel in that place. And that's a big encouragement we can have is whatever rights we may or may not have. uh, First of all, even if we have no, you know, rights in that left-hand realm, they, that can't take away the gospel from us. That can't take away our faith. But even if we do have those rights, we can still use those for the glory of God as Paul and Silas do here. So just a wonderful text, many, many things that we probably could have drawn out in addition to this. But again, as as we said earlier, the main character, the main driving force for everything behind this is the word of God spreading from those first, uh, that first day at Pentecost all the way through chapter 16 where it's converted Lydia it's converted a jailer uh, all kinds of people it's driven out a demon and we just see the power of God at work here through the word giving us a sure and certain hope uh, in an ever-changing world uh, not this isn't just something that was the first century occurrence this is still the power of God in our lives today as well Pastor Joel Heckman is pastor at St. John's Lutheran Church in Okarchi, Oklahoma, helping us today with Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40. Pastor Heckman, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. Great to be here. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts chapter 16, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.